You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In 1897, an extra edition of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer hyped the arrival of a steamer from Alaska loaded with more than a ton of solid gold. Gold, gold, gold. 68 rich men on the steamer Portland. Stacks of yellow metal. The article celebrated the steamer's cargo worth $700,000. Thousands rushed to see the boat dock. Soon, Seattle was mad with Klondike fever. Fortune seekers quit their jobs and began the journey north. Newspapers around the country printed stories, spurring a stampede to Alaska by way to Seattle. Print continued its influence during the Alaska pipeline rush in the 1970s. A New York Daily News article about the boom resulted in 6,056 and 1,370 phone calls to the pipeline company in one month. But starting in 2011, it was the screen that propelled people all over America to the North Dakota oil field. One viewer in Olympia, Washington, saw a news feature on the oil boom during a blur of Jersey Shore episodes. He was struggling to find work after being laid off as a graphic artist at a sign shop and had been melting for weeks into a tattered couch in front of the TV, spending his unemployment checks on booze, pizza, and ice cream. The marijuana was running out. He scraped the resin out of his pipe in desperation. Greg Thompson taped the episode and watched it several more times, feeling his excitement build. He packed his belongings and rode the Amtrak 1,100 miles east. When the train finally stopped in Wilston, he stepped eagerly into the dark of winter and walked down Main Street, past the day labor office, the strip clubs, the biker bar, crossed the wall with the Ten Commandments, the Chamber of Commerce, and J.C. Penney, and into the lights of the main thoroughfare, 2nd Avenue West. Greg called hotel after hotel to book a room, but they were all full. Weary of the foreboding night ahead, Greg went into the lounge of the Vegas Motel and ordered a Jack and Coke. He played pool and met a man who gave him a lead for a job doing wireline, which involved handling explosives on frack jobs. It must have been midnight when he rolled his suitcase down the road again. Greg spotted a mattress store and walked around the back. 
Greg climbed into a dumpster filled with discarded mattresses and built himself a fort that would guard against the icy winds. He created a bed out of an old recliner and buried himself in bubble wrap. Greg smoked a bowl and began filming himself, blue eyes peering from a pale face, shining from the darkness, tilted as though he were being filmed at gunpoint in a hostage video. Color me crazy. I did what I had to do. Got a $19 an hour job offer. Pending my clearances because we work with explosives. Early in the morning, the shriek of a garbage truck awoke him. He sent video of the dumpster fortress he had built to his brother, who loved it, and told him he should post it on YouTube. Thus were the beginnings of a small-time internet star. 6,466 hits. Hey, just a note. I will be down in Philadelphia for Podcast Movement 2018. That's a uh, big convention, Podcast Movement, and it's the first time that my history can beat up your politics has been at a podcasting convention. I've been uh, podcasting for 12 years, really, as of this time. This was about the time in 2006 when we did our first episode, Presidents and the Media, about George W. Bush. The use of the New York Times to kind of put stories in and how other presidents had used the media in different ways. It's something that's available in the archive, and that gives me a good opportunity to plug the premium podcast where my history can beat up your politics. And at different levels, you will get archived episodes. You'll get you'll get them at all levels. It's just how many you get. And we do have people who are a member of the Grover Cleveland Club, which is $8 a month, and then you get access to the whole archive. Because I do get some questions from time to time, like, what happened to the archive? And it, it's still available. It's just been folded into the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics premium extra podcast. You also get the extra podcast. And there's an archive building for that extra podcast because I've been doing it since 2016. So if you want to hear stories like about the 188 election and the rum, Romanism, and rebellion content that con comment that probably changed that election and threw it to Grover Cleveland, we discuss that and what really happened there. You know, if it is really true, how come James Blaine didn't cover quickly enough? We talk about those things. I talk more about John F. Kennedy's run for vice president. Ten things that you didn't know about the 1972 election and the McGovern campaign, and particularly about the Thomas Eagleton affair, where for 18 days, McGovern had a running mate that he was forced to let go. There's more. Uh, we have a recent episode about presidents and Canadian prime ministers, including one with the last name of Trudeau. But not the Trudeau you're thinking of. The last episode we had, The Dark Side of Booms, 
was a replay of a 2014 episode. I will do replays. I know some people, you know, are like, oh, I, I already heard this and things like that. Yes, if you're a very long-time listener to the show, you will have heard things. I'm trying to only replay where it's been a while or well, it, where it's just such an important topic in the news that we have to talk about it. Now, four years, I think, is pretty fair. Uh, so you'll hear me start to replay a few of those good 2014 episodes here and there. There's a particular reason why I replayed The Dark Side of the Boom. By the way, thanks for all the positive comments that I've gotten about it. I, I think there's a few folks who, who hadn't heard it or didn't realize that it was uh, something that was recorded a while ago. We got an opportunity to speak to journalist Maya Rao, who stayed up in the North Dakota oil fields for a time and interviewed all sorts of oil workers, truckers, cashiers, and and everybody involved in what was a really giant boom at the time. Artifacts of dreams abandoned have long strewn North Dakota's landscape. Old farmsteads, shuttered schools, wood planks rotting in the prairie grass. The Northern Pacific Railway drove settlements along the tracks west of the Missouri River. But residents built too many towns, too many churches, too many farms, newspapers, and schools to support a society that never grew as populous as planned. Farmers struggled against blizzards and droughts and meager harvests. Some starved. Many fled. Half of North Dakota's communities were losing people by the 1930s, when the state's population peaked at nearly 681,000. Citizens clustered the cities of Bismarck, Grand Forks, and Fargo. The western edge of the state faded into earthen bones as the young left for better prospects, and the old died off. And what would end up changing that, according to Maya Rao, is not so much a incredible discovery, but a, but a discovery of sorts. See, it was always known that there's oil up in, in North Dakota. That's not new. North Dakota's first oil discovery came in 1951 in the little town of Tioga. But the petroleum was difficult to extract. A burst of oil development came in the 1980s, followed by a oil bust that stranded local governments with debt. So it's in 2008 when advances in hydraulic fracturing, we know that is fracking, and horizontal drilling confirmed the largest domestic oil deposit since the discovery of the reserves under Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, four decades earlier. Billions of barrels of oil lay in the Bakken Shale Formation. Western North Dakota became an astonishing laboratory for the Darwinian breakneck capitalism that one imagined was no longer possible in modern America. Something my own another chapter refers to as the rhapsody of the free market. Outsiders engulfed the state to get rich, to hide out, or to start over. The state's population grew for the first time in the lives of even its most elderly residents. Observers compared it to the California gold rush when hordes of people flocked into an untrammeled terrain to make their fortune. But the journey to the West Coast then, we've talked about this on the on the cast at different times, by 
horse or ox meal wagon across the country was dangerous. Gold seekers fought cholera, hostile Indians, starvation. Voyages by sea were not that much better. <laughs> we talked about how visitors to the early California would have to go usually through Costa Rica, Nicaragua, or Panama, take a steamship from New York, and then get across the jungle one way or the other. Often that was the perilous part. Not that the sea voyages were that easy either. And then get to California that way. Um, one of the state's early senators, when it becomes a state, Broderick, is um, riding across on a, on a stage wagon and injures his back. It's thrown up by the horse. It wasn't an easy travel. But Meyerell makes the point that in 2008 in North Dakota, you have a little different dynamic in a boom there. Adventurers drove, hitchhiked, or rode the train or bus to North Dakota. There was little of the speculative nature of past booms. Nobody wildcatted anymore. Companies knew where the oil was and had the technology to extract it. Newcomers were almost guaranteed to find a job, as long as they could pass a drug test. And if they couldn't, those were easy enough to fake. Journalists came from around the world to North Dakota, often for just a few days. Meyerow was one of them, traveling from Minneapolis to the oil field for a week in 2012. As she said, observers always said this would be study in history classes a century from now. And history demands a book. So Meyerow visited North Dakota again in 2014, and this time stayed for a much longer time. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Myra is a staff writer in the Washington, D.C. Bureau of the Minneapolis Star Tribune, and her work has appeared in the Atlantic, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and other sources. She is the author of The Great American Outpost, Dreamers, Mavericks, and the Making of an Oil Frontier. And she's joining me on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Maya, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. North Dakota was our kind of bucking the trend state there during the Great Recession. While everybody else was down, it was up. You looked at what happened there, and you talked about the human side of that boom, and your book has a lot of uh, stories. I mean, a few years before, North Dakota had been trying to bring people to the state, and then is getting an onslaught of truck drivers and other oil field workers. It really drew a variety of people from not just around the nation, but from around the world. And so uh, you had a lot of laborers, you know, people coming up. But really, it, it was it was people who were also investors, many people who were businessmen who had gone bankrupt during the financial crisis or lost everything, uh, lost all of their uh, savings or wound up in trouble there. I mean, you had people who were running from the law, people who were con artists, predators. There was a lot of you know people who really wanted a new start, wanted to hide out. 
just wanted to recreate themselves. In some ways, I, I thought a lot about the California gold rush. I mm. thought about the Klondike and the Alaskan pipeline boom in the 70s. It had some similar dynamics there. In North Dakota, there hadn't been as much pipeline, so it required the need for an awful lot of truck loads of all kinds of things, the oil itself, but also water, dirt, and gravel, and chemicals, and, and things like that. You know, a lot has been written on fracking and oil fields, but I haven't really seen anybody pick up on you know, this element of truck driving that just jumped out at me right away when I was in North Dakota. You know, trucking was the most common job. There's a lower barrier to entry, you know, as long as you can pass a, a CDL test. North Dakota just did not have the infrastructure that places like Texas had, or maybe even Pennsylvania. And then you need several thousand loads of fresh water to be delivered from a water depot to a frack site or from, you know, an oil tank to a railroad station uh, to transport it to refineries. So, I mean, that, uh, that led not just to inconvenience because locals couldn't really go anywhere. Uh, it would take 45 minutes to go what had been maybe 20 minutes before. Um, but it, it also led to a lot of death on the road. So I learned that a lot of people there, a lot of the locals had lost at least somebody they knew on these roads. You know, trucks were tipping over every day. And, you know, I mean, these people who were driving were often quite exhausted. They were really inexperienced. Um, some were on drugs or drinking. So and, and the roads were really not made for this heavy industrial traffic to come through. I mean, these were really just narrow farm roads um, that shouldn't have been used for that purpose. So that's why I decided in the book to profile um, a truck driver named Danny from North Carolina who came up there on a whim, didn't really know what he was doing. He had been a surfer and sort of a beach bum for a while and, and was fumbling his way along you know, as he steers 100,000 pounds uh, down the road. Kind of a harebrained scheme with a couple of other friends to make his way up there and uh, figure out how to drive a truck. But a lot of people were doing things like this. A lot of you referenced that, you know, so many of the people were coming from areas maybe in West Virginia or other parts of the South and where there wasn't as much opportunity and looking at North Dakota. And, and they certainly found work and some high wages. They also found other issues, high rents, a lot of overcrowding. For most people, if they set their mind to it and worked hard, they would probably um, be able to come out all right. Um, some people would get sort of distracted up there. I mean, just, you know, I, I actually knew um, one roughneck who was telling me that people who were starting to make, you know, the most money they had ever made in their lives. So once you, you're at that point, he was saying you don't, to save all of that right away, you want to at least enjoy yourself a little bit first for a couple of years, and then you'll save. So a lot of people, uh, you know, I heard one guy was, was joking about how his friends would fly out to Las Vegas after making 17000 just a couple of months, and they'd, they'd come home and eat ramen noodles till their next paycheck. Uh, <laughs> so there was a lot of just glowing cash. And I want to be clear, it's not just um, a stereotype that it's blue-collar workers who are doing that, but um, that, I found that's not uh, always true. I mean, one of the biggest, uh, most prominent examples in my book was um, a British developer who came in, was in the man camp business, and he was known for spending $400 per shot on luxury cognac. <laughs> and uh, 
You know, yes. spending money at strip clubs, buying everyone around. The authorities claim that he ran a worldwide Ponzi scheme, setting up these man camps, getting people from all over the world to invest in them and promising these really huge rates of returns. And so that industry could also draw people who were looking for a really get-rich-quick type scheme. Yeah, talk a bit about the, the man camps. Uh, it seemed to be the, the, the symbol of the, the new North Dakota. There were just these, the, the, there were so many people coming, they, they really didn't have places for them to, to live, did they? Basically, a lot of people could come in and see that they could make money setting up man camps, these groupings of trailers, uh, temporary trailers for men to stay in, uh, as there was not enough permanent housing yet. Um, but that caused a lot of controversy, you know, with city leaders who at some point, they really wanted to kick man camps out. You know, they wanted to be a permanent town. And, and people who uh, support man camps say that they are actually um, performing an important purpose because, you know, this cycle of oil can go up and down and you don't want to be stuck with all this brick and mortar infrastructure when oil moves around, even from different towns, you know, there's different towns where sometimes uh, there's more oil activity, sometimes there's less, even within the same Bakken region. So I really reported a lot on the battle. It was really heating up in 2015 as oil prices crashed and a lot of people left. A lot of apartment developers who had built all this new infrastructure were begging for tenants and they were angry that man camps could sort of undercut them you know, these uh, facilities that were cheaper to run and maintain. And so they began pressuring City Hall to kick them out. And that led to a court battle, but it was really just a symbol of this broader debate about temporary versus permanent interests. You know, do you want to be a boom town and a temporary town, or do you want to be a really civilized industry town uh, that's sort of a, a, a normal level of activity? Yeah, it's, it seems to get into so many issues. That local versus uh, newly arrived, there's a lot of talk uh, in, in American politics. Oh, what's great about America, you can go from state to state, and uh, you can move with your feet if you don't like uh, politics. This is, this is kind of the libertarian mm-hmm. uh, the strength of their argument. And I, 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 can, see, I can see that point to, to a certain extent. I also think that there are issues with okay, yes, you can move wherever you want, but the locals can create some obstacles, and the locals aren't always your friend, and you, you may not have the numbers in local politics to, to create the things you need. Sometimes these man camps were just like uh, shipping containers that were put onto a, 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 an empty field. So yeah, there were shipping container parks, um, but I, I think most, most man camps were higher quality than that. And actually, there's a major main camp company target logistics they're really praised for their professionalism that mm-hmm. you go in there and they've got food available all the time strict regulations on you know alcohol and drugs and weapons and um you know but you've also got other other companies um you know that that may not be doing it right then when you're in mckinsey county it's more rural i mean there was no building there's really no building regulation until the boom was a couple years in, and they really didn't have the manpower to, you know, know what, everything that was in their jurisdiction. So people could just build things and just stick things wherever. And there was just not a lot of oversight into who is sticking a trailer park or RV park or shipping container park 
uh, you know, anywhere they want. One of the downsides, I, th- I think, um, in the North Dakota example, is just the amount of employee uh, accidents and the amount of worker deaths that that occurred. Yeah, yeah, people. Yeah, there were there were two different types of danger. I mean, one one was one was from working too fast, people being sleepy, mm. people. Um, often people were were also were would would really get into accidents they were more likely to get into an accident when they were on the road driving to or from a shift rather than being on a rig um and then uh you know people would work a long shift and try to drive home to another state right after they'd fall asleep on the road uh trucking accidents um there was in one of the earliest examples of a a major worker death uh it was back in about 2010 there was a worker who was very inexperienced and they didn't teach him enough protocol about safety and putting on flame resistant clothing. And so there was uh, some sort of blow up on the rig and he, his body was really badly burned. Um, so you see things like that, you know, earlier in the boom where people are rushing and make mistakes. Um, but there's also a certain level of danger that happens regardless of oil prices or regardless of the pace that something's going at. So in the book, I write about how Danny, the truck driver, was, um, you know, uh, hauling oil and had to get on top of these oil tanks and um, gauge the oil and, and measure it um, and load it into the truck. So there had been at that time I had met him some controversy about workers dying from that, from these really toxic fumes. And, and there was controversy about why they were made to go all the way up there and have to stand directly over the tanks. And when you open them, it releases this big mm-hmm. toxic plume and why they couldn't do it uh, remotely uh, as, as it's often done in Canada. Um, so that's, that's something that's still sort of, you know, one of those ongoing types of dangers. You worked as a cashier for a while. Uh, what, what you know, right in the, right in the middle of all of this, um, and what was that like? Yeah, so I was a cashier at the Wild Bison Truck Stop, and I did that because I wanted to kind of understand what it was like from a worker's perspective. And at that point, retailers were really notorious for having big problems in getting any employees to work there. You know, the wages were often fourteen dollars an hour, seventeen dollars an hour, just to cashier or do a retail job because everyone wanted to get a higher paying oil job. So there was just really crazy turnover. And uh, I really enjoyed my job because at the cash register, you can meet so many different workers coming in. So if there was someone I had a good conversation with, I would write their number down and, and call them later. But you get a sense of all the rhythms of oil field life. I mean, you see all the junk food people eat and they were telling me that they don't have any woman to cook for them here. So <laughs> they're just, you know, eating beef jerky. And, uh, you know, I sold so many cans of chewing tobacco. I had to learn all these different brands that I had never heard of before. <laughs> um, and that's also because people cannot smoke uh, cigarettes on oil sites. Uh, so that's uh, something that people can do instead and you learn, I mean, I couldn't believe how much people spend on diesel fuel. I mean, truck drivers giving me a corporate credit card and charging $900 just to fill up the gas. So it was really, tech stuffs are just a really important part of oil field life. They're just these many economic hubs and there's, they're just places where uh, everyone comes together in the middle of their shift. 
And sometimes, um, I mean, all, all this has changed a little bit in the last couple of years, but, um, you know, one time that truck stop was really the only place on a major stretch of highway uh, between two of the major oil towns. It's the only place to really stop and get any food. So people, people don't always eat food at, at all the restaurants. They're, you know, they're, they're really, it was really common to just eat a meal at a truck stop. Long lines in that uh, crowded. But yeah, the mm. lines could add up very quickly. My f- job in high school or going into college uh, back when was um, was a it worked at a deli, and I always felt like you, 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 there's, there's no better way to meet a ton of people and also to see exactly what uh, what products are hot and and not, and what people are buying. and And then uh, I learned about all kinds of cigarette brands that I it seemed like twenty seven hundred different types of flavors that I didn't wouldn't have known before that but yeah no it's certainly an interesting uh, way to do kind of anthropology is uh, i think a person told you in terms of north dakota that her feeling was you just have to kind of put up with the opposite of the american dream a little and then when you're when you go home that's when you can have it yeah it depends but i i would say a lot of people shared that you uh, I also know people, and it's probably a minority of the overall group that was there. A lot of uh, there, there was a, still a sizable number that also really loved it there, or came to love it, or they decided to settle there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say, especially immigrants. Uh, there were a lot of African immigrants. I read about an Iraqi immigrant uh, in the book. They especially really loved that area. And so I've, I've heard a much different viewpoint from them. Um, but the woman you're mentioning, yeah, I mean, she made a comment that was really interesting because uh, I, I met her when I was reporting on this really odd encampment by a landfill. There were a lot of people living in trailers and in the sort of industrial park by this landfill, which sounds really bad. And it looks bad at first when you go there. And, and I was asking around why people were living there. And they were explaining that it's you know, kind of a nice secluded area. You can live there much more cheaply than in town. And they had built a sort of, you know, strong community back there. Um, you know, one guy was living in, like, his, his company put their employers in what looked like these sort of small tool sheds. Um, so they've got a bed and a TV and everything like that. And, and um, you know, one guy was saying, you know, some people make fun of his shed, but he's living there for free and back home his mortgage is almost being paid off. He can send all his salary back home and, you know, to his wife and kids and get that paid off. So there were definitely, um, there were people that were just putting up with conditions that they don't seem, were trying to take a long-term view about what they were really there for, which is just saving as much money as possible. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Looking out my window, it's like a play. 
Down the way was the Little Missouri Grill, a comfort inn, an old grain elevator, a bank, and the future home of a Mexican restaurant where customers would also be able to cash checks, get cell phones repaired, and send money grams. Even when the storm's washing all away, just grab and leaves the float. A 30-foot white bust of Theodore Roosevelt, dressed in a suit and tie, stared onto the highway, looking out from the parking lot of a hotel named in his honor. His mustache drooped. His hair was cropped closely. The narrow eyes, rimmed by spectacles, seemed almost jaded, as though he had seen too much and was looking past it all. Trucks rumbled back and forth to deliver construction materials for the mass of new developments that conjured some distant idol. Bison Run, Pheasant Ridge, trailers loomed on the hillside like gargantuan tombstones. They hadn't built the highway to accommodate the 12,000 vehicles that passed each day between Williston and Watford City, a six-fold increase from before the oil boom. Farmers who lived a half-mile back from the road stopped hanging their clothes out to dry because the fabric would become soiled by flying dust from the traffic that snarled and spat like the New Jersey Turnpike during rush hour. I was late to several appointments on account of delays. The highway was only two lanes, and laborers were widening it to four as part of the largest road construction project in state history. Cargo pants, excuse Pitson Street. Barber shops now, the six near me. And coffee and ice cream. Bread fun, you're all right. The only crime is the gentrified. And the wages were high. I mean, the people were making, uh, you had people in their 20s, you know, easily making over 100000 and I guess depending on what you did. Yeah. Um, so usually, though, to get those high wages, it was pretty common for people to work 80 hours a week mm-hmm. or more. So probably when you work it out hourly, probably it wasn't as high as it looked. But yeah, people were making uh, really good money for a while. And then when oil prices fell, um, you know, wages are, are still higher, but, but they've, they've had to come down a lot. And like a lot of the perks that people used to get, uh, they don't have as much of that anymore. And I remember people would complain, you know, that they could only get 40 hours a week now. Uh, <laughs> that was considered not real work. I mean, people wanted a lot of hours, a lot of overtime. Um, and and, and it's, that's a large part of that is because you're in North Dakota, so it's cold, it's isolated, it's far from your family. So that's only going to be worth it if you get a bigger paycheck. And at least initially, rents were, first of all, hard to find, just hard to find housing, and then pretty high. I mean, you had some, what, what I would consider to be New York, New Jersey rates. When I was out there, I knew a lot of other people had covered that angle, so I was actually... One thing that I found fascinating that I wrote about in the book that I don't think gets talked about enough is that after oil prices fell, developers didn't really lower the rents mm-hmm. um, as much as they should have, given that a lot of people were taking pay cuts and leaving and losing their jobs. 
and and but these developers to build there it was really expensive the land and the subcontractors and the materials and so they were really there was this feeling of of um the you know desperation they had and and yet they just it took them so long to lower their rents to meet the need and that just furthered the exodus where people were like i have no job and you know there's not enough work here mm-hmm. uh during the oil price crash and so so they leave and stuff whole thing was was really fascinating to watch as developers were really desperate when it it flipped so quickly you know um in in less than a year's time developers who had once you know been accused of being greedy and overcharging everybody were now really desperate for tenants and desperate to not lose their investment yeah no i i had i had done a little look uh willis williston was the town some of them were down to you saw some you know, where it used to be two thousand now some of them are thousand a month it sounds kind of high for for north dakota but uh certainly right. uh, uh yeah not as high as it as it was so it went down yeah i mean um we had uh done an episode uh a while back uh, called The Dark Side of Booms, and it focused on the 1920s. Before I, I issue this uh, episode, I, re- I will have replayed that episode. Uh, we talked about like, a lot of good things about the 1920s. One of the things is many of the suburbs that people uh, now you know, are, are highly developed in Burbank, California, various towns outside Chicago, Paramus, New Jersey. You know, these were relatively small, not very well developed places that just boomed in the 1920s, kind of in a similar way. And the 1920s brought a, a high level of employment, good wages for some, new benefits like stock purchasing, but it also... You know, had some had some downsides during the same period in the later part of the 1920s. There was definitely a price inflation, rents and and going up, less space. You know, people that thought that they had a lot of space or their house was not adjoining anything. Now we're seeing new subdivisions, uh, a lot more um, availability of credit and using of credit for purchases. And more um, working on speculation, people, in other words, doing a lot of work, hoping for payment in, in stocks or having put a lot of money into stocks and then some made out, some didn't. And just the general anxiety and a lot of hours and, and a pace to keep up with because in a boom period, like the 20s, while people felt better, they also felt like others were getting ahead or doing uh, more. Any of that sound familiar when we look at the North Dakota example? Um, yeah, yeah. There were there are definitely some similarities. One one thing that was interesting about the oil field was that people people in the oil business, of course, know that there's booms and busts, and mm-hmm. they had just come up the financial crisis too. So you could see people had seen that housing had crashed. Um, but they just kept telling themselves like this one is different. This is the big one. You know, this is, this boom is going to last 20 years. Mm -hmm. It's never going to end, you know, um, throughout history, you'll you'll see people think, Oh, this, this one is going to be different. This is really the big one. Um, and people seem to forget historical examples or minimize them. 
um, because they get really caught up uh, emotionally. Yeah, I think that, uh, and, and you could see where it would happen. In the 1920s, it was about, uh, oh, this is different because we have the automobile, because we have the radio, we have uh, new methods of consumer financing. Consumers are more powerful now and able to buy more things. These are all new technologies that we didn't have before. So this boom's going to last forever. <laughs> in, North Colo- in North Dakota, I mean, if I was to speculate, I could see that the, the idea of fracking and how much extra oil and that can produce and the, that technique versus your standard drilling and the amount of oil located there it probably seemed like uh, you know things will last forever, but uh, I mean, in some ways, the very nature of the the Bakken oil find had an impact on global uh, oil prices. It was more supply, so it's uh, you know it's right. it's almost it was almost self uh, self a self fulfilling thing, um, and uh, yeah, it was was certainly not going to um, to last forever. This one oil worker, and I met him for an interview at this truck stop uh, during 2015 in the in the real height of the oil crash, uh, he just said, he said, they just drilled themselves out of existence, <laughs> you know, and I stole that line in the book because <laughs> I really liked it. It's so funny how, like, you know, uh, people that get caught up in this, they want to just do it as fast as possible. That was a big criticism of the North Dakota oil boom that I'm sure you'll find in any other historical example, but... Um, you know, there were there were questions about why state regulators kept giving out drilling permits pretty much as fast as they were requested, instead of taking a more moderate, measured approach so that there would be time to build infrastructure, time to build roads and pipelines. Um, but, you know, oil moves quickly and, you know, rigs and frac sites, everyone was working 24 hours a day. Um, you no. know, oil was at 100 a barrel and they wanted to maximize that. Yeah, it's certainly hard to hard to regulate, hard to get people to slow down, and the and the state didn't have, I, I suppose, the infrastructure to to manage it all. One of the things I thought was interesting was just how, aside from approving drilling permits, just their whole regulatory framework was often really lagging behind um, the height of a certain problem. You know, whether it was flaring or illegal waste dumping or pipeline spills. Regulators would often wait till there was some big catastrophe or a lot of media scrutiny, and then they'd finally try to come up with something. But by then, like the problem would have been would have been ebbing a little bit. Um, there was just always seemed to be this total mismatch of timing, which I think is just the nature of a boom. By the time the government can act and do anything, it's often too late. A reminder that I'm speaking with Maya Rao. She's the author of Great American Outpost, Dreamers, Mavericks, and the Making of an Oil Frontier. I know uh, one of the things that you talk about is how you were living in a um, in an area of housing for women across from a from a Walmart. And they talk a bit about this really seems like a male-driven world that North Dakota became in a, in the last uh, in the last decade. A lot of times I really just forgot I was a woman. I wasn't really <laughs> thinking about it and nobody was really making an issue of it. And I was able to get on rigs and nobody was bothering me. And so then sometimes when it became an issue, I would really be caught off guard or really shocked. And the, the biggest example of that is when I, you know, I had, I had been 
during the boom, I'd been crashing on couches and spare mattresses and all those sort of things. But at some point I wanted to, uh, once I got this book deal, uh, just sign an apartment lease and really get a place. And I knew I'd have to share it with other people because housing was still expensive. Mm-hmm. I assumed I might have some men who were housemates and that didn't really bother me because I wasn't planning on being home that much. Um, but I would respond to some ads on Craigslist and when they learned I was a woman, there was really this resistance. And one landlord told me, um, you know, uh, we, we don't want to discriminate, but we can't put anyone in a compromising situation. And you know, there is this fear, not that the woman or that I would do anything wrong, but that if you have male roommates, then some guy could bother you. Uh, and then the landlord is liable. And, and there was this general feeling that the genders should be segregated, um, especially in housing. And that's why, you know, it was common for, uh, even at man camps, they're really not allowed to have guests. A mm. lot of that, um, that keeps out prostitutes, that keeps out, um, you know, uh, you know, it, 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 it's just a barrier there. And for women, um, you know, I, I finally found this out on Craigslist that was a house for all women. And I got a basement room in there. And we also were not allowed to have guests. And part of that was, you know, a fear that somebody's oil worker boyfriend might trash the place. Mm-hmm. So everybody just generally <laughs> thought that we should be all kept separate. And I, I actually, I mean, I think it was great to live in a house of all women. And that would have always been my preference. But, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to be at home that much. And I wanted to pick housing based on where I wanted to live and not have any other restriction. And so I had never really wanted to live in the oil town of Williston. I had hoped to live, you know, there were some other oil towns I was more interested in living in, but I mean, I had to go with this place that was, uh, I felt like it would be safe. It would be, um, it was also safe because it was on the major road. So if there's any blizzard or any issue, we were right there uh, in the middle of everything. Um, but it was really fascinating, fascinating to meet these other women. You know, um, uh, there were several women who were house cleaners there. And so, um, you know, house cleaning was a very common job mm-hmm. in the Bakken. And it, it did not have this lower class stigma that it has in many other parts of the country. In the Bakken, this is a very high paid, very lucrative job. And so people can make really good money cleaning because all these men don't, they don't have the time to clean up after themselves and they can pay somebody to do it. So it was interesting to learn about that business a little bit more when I lived there. You know, I'm sure I missed one of the many stories or anything else that you think is really important for for people to know. Yeah, I was very fascinated when I was there. uh, And I I tried to write a lot about this, um, but this culture of con artists that Mm -hmm. come up there people who, you know, are um, on the run from the law, people who would come up with these really interesting schemes. Um, You know, I met a drug trafficker. I met some guys who had been under investigation by the SEC. I reported on that Ponzi schemer from England. I thought it was very fascinating that uh, all these people that, you know, sort of make headlines for their uh, scandals just converge in the middle of nowhere in North Dakota from all these different states. And when you're there, there was really a feeling that you could be talking to anybody. They could be wanted in another state. They could be running a million dollar drug trafficking ring. You really have no idea. 
Uh, you can't tell. Um, you would think that you could tell. You really can't. So, so that to me was was one of the most fascinating parts of the experience of being there. Great. Well, uh, Maya, thanks for coming on. My history could beat up your politics. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. I want to thank Maya Rao for coming on the program. Again, the book is Great American Outpost, Dreamers, Mavericks, and the Making of an Oil Frontier. That is from Public Affairs Press, and Public Affairs has been pretty good to my history, can beat up your politics. Don't forget, our website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There you can sign up for the premium podcast, help the program, and get extra episodes. Real quick, I want to thank, uh, we have two musical artists that have music was featured. Lee Rosevear is someone who I've played a lot on this program. His music is available at the Free Music Archive website. And we also have Josh Armistead, and that song that you heard in the middle of it um, is uh, Red Fern. So uh seemed like a good North Dakota Highway song. Again, go to that website, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for listening. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.